everybody. Welcome to another episode of The Bottom-Up Revolution. I'm your host, Tiffany Owens-Reed. This is the show where we talk to ordinary people who are working on a grassroots level to improve their city. Today, I'm joined by Scott Jones. He's a lifelong resident of Long Beach, California. He is also the co-founder and executive director of We Love Long Beach, a nonprofit that encourages and equips residents to build connections with their neighbors through acts of generosity and hospitality. They do this through three main events or initiatives, which we'll talk about more in the show, seasonal citywide parties, temporary street shutdowns, and neighborhood groups. Their work shows how simple gestures of hospitality can be on-ramps to deeper connections with our neighbors, which can translate into friendships, meaningful political collaboration on the local level, and effective defense against loneliness. Scott, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Tiffany. I'm really excited to talk with you. I feel like this is probably one episode where I have to be very careful. Otherwise, we might just record for like two or three hours. Um, I'm okay. I know we love these these (laughs) topics, neighborliness, parties. (laughs) Um, So many good things. Well, let's kick things off with your city. Let's talk a little bit about your city and kind of your history. You have... You have deep roots in Long Beach. Can you tell me a bit um, about your family's history in the city? My great-great-grandparents came to Long Beach in 1901, and my great-grandmother ended up marrying a guy named Alvin, and they ended up having my grandfather, Donald, and Donald ended up going to Wilson High School, where my dad went to Wilson High School, and I went to Wilson High School. So um, our roots are very deep. Uh, they're, my great-great-grandparents' first house is around two miles from where my parents live and where I grew up. So we didn't go, we didn't stray too far um, from Long Beach, which recently Long Beach was known as the city with the most nice days in the country. So there's probably a reason around that as well, that we have good weather that keeps us here. So that's one of the the beauties of of our city. Um, I love that on this show, I get to talk to a variety of people who have different relationships to the city where they live in. So some people have, are living in cities where they grew up, their families grew up, some people are moving to new cities. So it's really fun to get that perspective, especially um, as someone myself, like I grew up pretty transient. So um, I think that it's just really fun to have that perspective from kind of both sides. Um, So I've never been to Long Beach. I've lived in California in different cities, but I don't think I've been to Long Beach. So tell us a little bit about the city. What, what makes it unique? Yeah, it's, it's a special city because we are kind of the stepchildren of Los Angeles and Orange County, we fit right in the middle of, of both of them. And we are also the, the home of Cameron Diaz and Snoop Dogg, who went, those are, to, the those same, are fun facts. <laughs> who went to the same high school together. And no way. Cameron Diaz joked that she thinks she bought weed um, in high school from Snoop Dogg. So that kind of gives you an idea of our city where we're putting out uh, great actresses like Cameron Diaz of The Mask and others, Carly's Angels, and also Snoop Dogg with songs like uh, Gin and Juice and Drop It Like It's Hot. <laughs> so We have so much to, to be indebted to Long Beach for. Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think there's any other city that doesn't have a sports team that wears LB. We have an a LB hat. So you walk down the street and like every person has an LB hat. So we take tremendous pride in our city. Um, We're a special city because we have a breakwater. And what the breakwater does, it doesn't allow waves, which Long Beach in 1937 had the best waves in Southern California. And the Marines brought in um, a breakwater to protect them from the waves. And that's kind of what created um, a possibility for lower income homes and more diversity 
in our city, which allows for Snoop Dogg and, and Cameron Diaz to, to go to the same high school. That was an, uh, a piece of art, how you like brought that all together. <laughs> You've set the standard really high now for all of my future <laughs> interviews. <laughs> so well, if, if you're listening to this and you think you may one day be on the bottom of revolution, now you know the standard has been set. <laughs> In addition to working full-time as a longshoreman, correct? I have your, your title correct. Yes. I hope. Great. Um, you also run a nonprofit called We Love Long Beach. So tell us the story or tell tell us what this nonprofit is and, and how did you all get started? Yeah. Um, my parents own a duplex um, in a neighborhood called Belmont Shore. And Belmont Shore is, is, is two blocks from the beach. And it also is one block um, from kind of where all the, the restaurants and the retail businesses are called, it's called Second Street. And so we grew up there. And so while we were living together in 2008, we were like, we don't really know our neighbors. We've lived here 25 years. Now we know a couple people over time, but as a whole, we didn't really know who lived on our street. So we were like, well, what would it look like to throw a breakfast um, we lived right next to a park. Um, literally, our front yard was a giant park. It's like, well, what it looked like to make a flyer and go door to door and invite neighbors on our street, which is St. Joseph, but also invite Park Avenue Street one over and on the other side, Argonne. And what, what would it look like to invite them to breakfast? And with that, I think there's a lot of fear in that. Here we are. We're not new to the neighborhood. We kind of been there, you know, for 25 years. And, and so there's fear of like, what are people going to think? Like, we don't know these people. They haven't cared about us, you know, ever before. And now they care about us now. And so there's that fear of just walking door to door, you know, afraid of dogs and, and what, you know, people slamming our, you know, their, their door in our face. And I did it. Um, and that Saturday, 50 neighbors showed up to breakfast for, for pancakes and sausage and fruit and coffee. And we had tables and chairs set out. And people are like, oh, my goodness, like, this is incredible. This is, this is amazing. And one neighbor ended up um, coming up to me after and said, this is what it was like 40, 50 years ago when I grew up. Thank you so much. She gave me this, this giant hug which at the time I don't think I'd ever hugged a neighbor before. Um, and it, it, the light bulb just went off. Like there's something here. There's something to hospitality, to inviting our neighbors, which were strangers and to allow them for, to potentially um, over time become friends. And so the next month we threw another breakfast, 100 neighbors showed up and, um, a couple months after that, we threw a barbecue, 500 next door neighbors showed up. And it kind of, at that moment, we were like, this is incredible. This is powerful. You know, there's, there was no police, you know, or, or government behind it. It was, it was just a neighbor to neighbor invitation that you could tell that this is what people were longing for, this connection this sense of belonging and relationship. And, and so we're like, well, what, what would it look like to go to other neighborhoods? And we ended up winning uh, a $10,000 grant. And we used that money to buy breakfast equipment. And we spent the next three years going from neighbor to neighborhood, um, having breakfast and inviting neighbors to get to know their, their neighbors. But what ended up happening over time um, that we didn't think about was frustration kicked in, um, fatigue kicked in. Um, and we're like, this is not the, the best approach um, to connecting for neighbors. And so over time, we were like, well, is there a better way of doing it? Um, and what we recognize is that we were doing things for neighbors instead of allowing neighbors to do it with each other and, and coming alongside one another. And that was, I think the major shift for us is 
And I think for most nonprofits, uh, political entities and religious entities, that so many people are running nonprofits for people and aren't really thinking about how do we nurture relationships and, and create invitations around getting people together to come alongside each other. And uh, so that was kind of really the second birth of, of, of our nonprofit and, and kind of where we're at today. I love the the way that you didn't let like overthinking get in the way or like I feel like it'd be so easy to worry. Like, what if we don't make enough? What if no one comes? What if it rains? What if the police show up and tell us we have to shut down? But just that taking that initiative and taking that first step. And even though eventually you had to pause for a minute and say, like, hold up, we have to rethink this model. I think there's so much power in just getting started. Like, take just 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 do something right. Um, it can really um, get the ball rolling and, and, and push through that initial resistance that might show up. So tell me how you all are organized now. So after you made this for you versus with you shift, how did that shape kind of how the organization runs? Yeah. So what we did is instead of going to a neighborhood and doing things for people, um, we started creating kits and, and we were like, well, what if we created an event to gather on a regular basis um, where it almost becomes like a ritual or, or, or a neighborhood rhythm that people can be invited into. And so we started a breakfast that represents uh, winter. Um, we do an event called Long Beach Day that represents um, spring, which it's an invitation to do whatever you want to do um, on your block and within your neighborhood. And then to launch summer, we do an ice cream social, which in the, I think in the last 10 years, Long Beach was rated the, the number one ice cream consuming city in the country. So that goes over well. We love our, our Rite Aid ice cream and chocolate malted crunch ice cream. And- you guys just have the best fun facts. I feel like you're like <laughs> the city with the best fun facts. I don't know. Maybe we have to create a bit of a competition here and get people to start submitting fun facts about their city and city <laughs> I mean we and in 2015 when we did our ice cream social we had over a hundred ice cream socials happening at the same time oh my goodness around the entire city <laughs> you almost have the happiest children in the entire <laughs> nation on this one day of the year <laughs> I mean, picture 50 neighborhoods or, or just like annoyed parents <laughs> either way <laughs> we also have diabetes issues no um <laughs> <laughs> um, I think there's a study recently that ice cream is good for you. So look it up. And then we do a fall event, which we love. Is It's kind of more of a side-by-side event where we work with uh, a local grocery store called Lazy Acres. And they d- donate hundreds of pumpkins. And then people come to, to my house and pick up pumpkins and, and carve pumpkins and, and share like a potluck with, with their neighbors. Um, so those are our... our are your four citywide events. We are also, um, we're working alongside the mayor. Um, this year, the mayor, typically our block party permit and barriers cost $150. This year, the mayor and the city dropped all the fees and the barriers. So for the next two years, we're going to be working alongside the mayor's office to invite people to host a block party, to create potlucks and have bands play and just bring life on a regular basis um, by taking over the streets for play and for connection and food and drink and fun. Um, so we're doing that. And then ten year, uh, after 10 years of research of the citywide events, one thing we learned was 90% of the people hosting these citywide events were moms. And so um, the beginning January of this year, we did a citywide launch to start moms groups. And on our launch in late January, we had 16 neighborhood mom groups, 16 different neighborhoods launch a moms group. And people are doing wine nights, um, going to restaurants. They are one moms group just started um, in El Dorado Park South, started a fantasy football league for moms. 
um, that just launched. Moms are doing play dates. Um, one group in Eldorado Park West does every Friday. They get together at the playground with the moms after school and and play. Have their kids play together while they they connect and chat. So then after that, the the dads got jealous. So I got together <laughs> with with a couple dads and we we're like, let's start a group called the Long Beach Rad Dads. And we recently had axe throwing with dads. We've gone to where Long Beach started. It's called uh, Rancho Los Alamitos and took our kids and they have horses and goats and uh, beautiful um, cactus gardens and stuff. So I took our kids there. Um, we're working on a, a trip to a museum um, and a local library. And we just did a, a kite flying day with dads and kids. And so just kind of opening up opportunities. I mean, I'm not into axes, but this one dad was kind of a bad axe. And, and so he's like, I want to throw axes. And so, so we did that. And, uh, and I didn't have to show up. And one dad threw two axes at once and hit a bullseye. So, yeah. Um, other things that came out of that, um, a mom's group with children with uh, disabilities and unique needs. So moms are coming together around the city to talk about what challenges they're facing, what resources um, they have, and what are they learning? And a place to just to share and to be open and vulnerable and intimate and talk about difficult things that, that moms are going through. I went to the first one and I was crying the entire time, recognizing like, man, I didn't know that these are real challenges that, that moms are facing. Uh, another mom's like, hey, my son, Net, who has a disability, has never had a friend in high school. And here he is in college and still has no friends. But he loves chess. So he started a chess group at a Viento y Agua, Agua coffee shop that they meet twice a month at. And the last uh, chess group had nine chess players playing chess against each other. And so all these little groups are forming and connections are being made both on a block level and an interest level and on a mom level and a dad level. And I just think whatever people are into, we're willing to create a flyer and say, go at it. And so, yeah, that's a couple things going on. Just a few <laughs> couple things. I mean, I might start tearing up any minute now. Um, <laughs> I will have you know, after hearing, we got to talk before recording, which was fun. And on the drive home a couple of days ago, I announced to my husband that I want to throw a pie party where we live and just go invite everybody to bring a pie for the fall. I'm really what's excited your, about it. What's your go-to pie? Oh, this is a, oh my goodness. This is so <laughs> difficult. This might take some time. I, I don't know if there could be one. I'll have to give you my top three, but pecan pie, sweet potato pie. Those are definitely top two. A good cherry pie. It's cobbler pie. You, could you do it on, on March 14th, the pie day? No, I want to do it for the fall. Pie and cider. <laughs> like make a big pot of cider and everybody bring a pie and have pie and cider. Where we live, there's a huge front yard and I think it'd just be awesome. The point of this is, not, is to say that this is all very inspiring. Again, just going back to this idea of like just starting somewhere, just starting something and letting it grow organically. Because um, I love how like the moms group just came out of starting to bring people together and then observing, right? And then being like, hey, let's do something with what we just noticed. And then something else popped up and then something else popped up. And I think sometimes in the world of like in this world of like people who care about their city and they want to do something, sometimes it can be really overwhelming to feel like you have to know exactly how it's going to turn out or exactly what the results will be, or every little logistical detail, or every little like contingency plan. But it seems like like kind of what you're modeling is just what can happen when you find a few simple but rich, I don't know if that's the right word, but because hospitality is not simple. What I'm saying is that it's like, it's, it's like core to who we are as people, right? And like really focus on that. And then just let it grow and kind of see where it takes you. Um, I think that's such a nice counterbalance or a nice challenge to the feeling of like having to have it all figured out from the start and letting letting the needs of the community kind of dictate like what do we do next, you know? 
rather than having programs that you like, you know, kind of from the beginning, it's, you know, these groups are emerging from the needs of your community. Um, I think that's really beautiful. Yeah. And I think part of that is one thing that we've learned is not just the power of the event, but it's, it's the power to reflect what went well, who wasn't here. We started with putting a, a flyer under a door. Well, sometimes that gets blown away. You know, I talked to a neighbor, Christine, she's like, well, I put tape on my flyer and I bring a pen and I write, Hey neighbor, I'm your neighbor. And I, I want to invite you to this potluck or this breakfast. And just having that extra personal touch of invitation really goes such a long way. And so reflection is so key to what we do because it enables us to recognize, well, we can, we can just, you know, change this and it just becomes a better experience for people. And at the end, that's what we want. We want people to feel like they belong. They feel like their story can be listened to and, and that trust can be more um, deeply built. So it's like the strong towns, model for meeting your neighbors, right? It's like humbly observe, right? Find one small thing you can do, learn from that, and then make an adjustment next time and then repeat, right? And I think we can apply that same formula to thinking about the social fabric of our neighborhoods and of our cities. So speaking of social fabric, um, I would like to ask you this mind-blowing question of like, why does neighborliness matter? Why does connection matter? I think it can be kind of easy to maybe spend a lot of energy thinking about economic issues or um, policy issues, finance issues, all of these things. But I've always kind of had a theory that the social fabric is super critical to the resilience of our cities and of our neighborhoods. But I find that sometimes it can be really hard to make a case for that. So you have way more experience with me, uh, way more experience than me in this world. And I would just love to hear kind of what you've learned over the years about why neighborliness and the social fabric of our communities is something we should really, really, we should care about. Yeah, 10 years ago, um, we were doing a breakfast in the South Oconet neighborhood, and um, my friend was leading it. And I was like, hey, you know, it's kind of can be awkward to go door to door by yourself. So I said, hey, I'll, I'll go with you. And so we went door to door around his neighborhood. And we got to this door, knocked on it, and a woman answered and said, hey, we want to invite you to a breakfast over at the local middle school. She said, yeah, I'm super interested. We finished talking, and she started. we started walking off her porch down to the sidewalk, and she started following us. And I was like, this is kind of weird. Why is she following us? And I got home, and I started thinking about, about it, and I was like, she's lonely. She doesn't have relationships. She doesn't have connections. She doesn't have anyone to talk to. And so like we were this gravitational pull of this longing to be connected and to belong. And that was the first time I ever really thought about loneliness. And back in, in March, April this year, the Surgeon General, Vivek Murthy, just announced that the United States has an epidemic of loneliness and social isolation. So what I was sensing 10 years ago has now become an epidemic. And so 50% of our neighbors that live next door to us are experiencing on a regular basis isolation and loneliness. Now, some of us might say, well, I'm not lonely. I have tons of friends. I have tons of connections. Well, you're on one side of the half. There's the other side of the coin who has no connections, who has no relationships. When something happens, they don't have those ties to make that phone call. Say, hey, I had a bad day at work. Hey, I have a new disease and I'm scared. Um, And so there are these neighbors all around us who are disconnected, who are invisible, and so part of neighborliness is, is this willingness to get outside ourselves and willing to risk and to, to, to show hospitality, to show invitation and welcome and, and get to know and listen to people. It's amazing when you just stop talking, you ask someone a question, 
how much they just want to talk. And, and so our ability to listen can be one of the biggest gifts for our neighbors uh, as we hear their story, their struggles, their joys, uh, their victories. Um, and so I think the, the future of, of hospitality is also around this idea of the gift of listening, the, gifting, the gift of being present um, and, and available and attentive to these people who, who really need us. If there's a need, it's, it's for relationship and connection. To add to that, I think um, what you're learning as well from these neighborhood groups that are popping up is how, you know, building these loose ties, getting to know your neighbors, taking the time to pay attention to the other half, as you're saying, can also be the sort of like on ramp to solving all kinds of problems or finding solutions, uh, coming up with creative ideas that can make your neighborhood better, or maybe just make your, your life better, right? Totally. Just thinking about like, well, what makes a resilient neighborhood? I mean, I think relationships go, they play such a huge role in thinking about like, what does it mean to be resilient as a neighborhood? And then you can just move up the ladder. What does it mean to be a res- resilient city? Well, eventually resiliency requires like people coming together and being able to talk, people being able to compromise, people being able to brainstorm and negotiate. But if you haven't built that foundation of like trust and connection, all of those things are a lot harder to do, a lot harder to facilitate. Yeah, I, I think our culture has focused so much on physical health for health, and we focused on we're beginning to move further into mental health and the value of having that conversation. And I think more people are being open around depression and anxiety and you know other things like that. Um, but the thing that we haven't talked about is the third circle, which is social health. That went. When, that when we live from a place of social health, all the research is showing that we live longer lives. Um, we reduce anxiety, depression, um, diabetes, uh, hypertension, all these sorts of things. All of our health issues we're recognizing are, are tied to our lack of social health. And so I think we need to move forward and, and put social health, which has been hidden invisibly underneath mental health as a part of mental health. And I think we need to break it off of mental health and uh, allow it to be its own thing and saying all three of these areas of physical, mental, and social health all play a major role in our overall holistic health. And we aren't having that conversation as a country. We're not having that conversation um, locally as neighbors. And I, I raised that question to Vivek Murthy recently. Um, I got to be a part of one of his conversations. And he's like, that's it. You know, he, he hadn't really thought about it yet. And I, he said, no, that's, I think that's the direction that we need to go. And he was thankful for that. So um, if, if the, the Surgeon General, who I think he's the only Surgeon General that's been Surgeon General under two presidents, um, is saying that I think that that's something that we need to take heed and and look further into. Um, I think it's so important, and we haven't even touched, you know, grazed the surface of that conversation. So tangential to this conversation about neighborliness is the topic or the, the idea of proximity, right? Because people might say, "Oh, I have great friends all over the city." But I bet if most of us mapped out our social lives, if we took a map of our city and then mapped out where all of our friends live, very few of them would actually live on our street, right? What What has your work taught you about the value of proximity and how we should think about the friendships we build based on shared interests, lifestyles, values, life seasons, and these relationships that you're challenging us to build based on proximity, based on the people who actually share our street with us? Yeah, I have a good friend with Eric. I would love to hang out with Eric and, you know, have his kids over, but he lives 15 minutes from me. But Eric has a neighbor named Cody who lives right next to him. They see each other every day. Eric will walk out. Hey, what are you doing? Nothing. What are you doing? Nothing. You want to go to the park? They go to the park together. It's just instant connection. Now, if I want to hang out with Eric, I got to call Eric a week in advance Hey, when are you not working? When are your kids available? You know, like 
there's so many steps. And then all of a sudden it might be a month out before I hang out with Eric where Eric and Cody are hanging out with every day. And there's a part where I get, I kind of get jealous of Cody. It's like, man, you live so close. You get to hang out with, with Eric way more than I do. And so take that to our street. You know, my neighbor, Matt, two doors over texted me. He's like, Hey, what are you doing? I got some neighbors over. This is, you know, come over in an hour, you know, have a drink. So I was like, let me talk to my wife, rule number one, and uh, <laughs> let me see what's going on. And uh, and within an hour, I'm hanging out with Matt and my neighbors. We're sharing a beer together. You know, we're talking anything and everything, laughing together, you know, and there's just that instant connection. You know, I, my wife's like, hey, I need you to paint the fence. So I go in the garage and I, I don't have masking tape. And I look over, I go to Jim's house across the street. I say, Jim, do you have masking tape? He's like, oh, let me check. He gives me his masking tape. He's like, hey, you need it back? He's like, yeah, just go for it. You know, so my wife was happy. I, you know, I framed the fence off so it didn't get paint, you know, paint on the house. And, you know, Jim came through with me. So it's, it's kind of a, a collection of all these little things that happen when you know your neighbors that are these little surprises and joys that you get to be a part of. You know, I'm happy for Eric and Cody, but I have my gyms and my mats, you know, in my neighborhood as well. So but take that, Eric. I wish we had a word for the magic. There is this weird feeling that happens when you can run across the street and borrow and ask for some sugar, when you can... Um, when your neighbor feels comfortable enough to ask you to like walk their dog because they have a last minute appointment or something, when you uh, even can just say hello and you know the person across the street by name. I don't know the word for this. I'm sure there is a word that exists, but there's a weird emotional experience that happens that does not happen with your close friends. And that's not a, it's not a bad thing, but I think the closest I ever got to this was when I spent six months wandering around Europe with like very little money. And I would spend a ton of time, like, like staying at hostels and oh my gosh, like you'd walk into that hostel and it was like, you were immediately all friends. Like everyone would share food. Um, if you didn't have anything, you could ask your, you know, people in the room with you, like people like, Hey, we're going out. Do you want to come? Like, we're all going to go get cheap beers at this random pub. Do you want to come? And I think as someone who grew up moving so often and I never really had that hometown feel or that neighborhood feel or that experience of being known in a particular place, by people with this more loose but magical connection. There's something about that that was just so, I almost want to say like healing, but just, um, I think I just appreciate it at a new, in a new way because I just never had that growing up. And I, I think there's something lost when we don't understand, like this is what we're missing. I feel like honestly, we've been sort of conditioned into such a state of privacy that we think it's rude to get to know someone who lives on your street. And I'm, I'm like the friendships based on proximity are probably some of the most challenging and magical ones you'll ever have because, and I don't know why <laughs> I don't know the word to describe what it feels like, but it's unique and there's something there. And just like what you're describing about the popover for a beer or a cup of tea, it's not planned. It's spontaneous. It has a level of like recognition. And and I think maybe that's what it is, is it just means someone is looking out for you and they don't have to because they're technically not even your friend. Like, you know what I mean? Like first ring friends, if we're using the Mark Dunkelman framework, like they don't have to, they could just go about their business and be, they don't, they don't, there's not really a duty to you. Right. But it just, the fact that this inclusion, it, it symbolizes such a level of attentiveness and, and, and memory, like someone has remembered you. And I think that just, I don't know, it makes me very emotional <laughs> just like thinking about it. And I, I think part of neighborliness is is realizing like what there is to harvest there, right? Not just the gift of being remembered and being seen and being included, but the opportunity to offer that to other people as well in this unique way because we're not – it's almost like because we're not friends that it means so much. Does that make sense? Totally. I love what you're saying. And I mean, I think you're really tapping in to something that isn't really being talked about. I mean, we could talk about – 
you know, neighborliness as a safety thing or a health thing or a thing that makes you happier. But I think you're talking about these kind of intangibles, like the mystery of neighborliness. Um, it's kind of these unspoken and you don't really know it until you experience it. And when you do experience it, you want more of it. Hence why I've been doing it for 15 years because I am an addict. I'm a, a neighborliness addict at this point. Because <laughs> of all the stories and experiences of myself and others that we share in it, it only brings us you know, closer together, more connected, more united, and more in love with each other. You know, to share that joy and that excitement that you're talking about. It's beautiful. I feel like that should be your next motto or your next t-shirt, neighborliness addict. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> I want to ask you, so someone might be listening to this and be like, man, I am, I'm really, I'm, I'm vibing with this. This really resonates. Um, but I know there'll be that resistance, right? What, what have been some of the biggest obstacles, even f- like for yourself or that you've seen in other people to getting out of that comfort zone, getting out of the first ring. And so let, let me explain the three rings. I think we talked about this. Mark Dunkelman's book, The Vanishing Neighbor, he presents these three rings that everyone kind of, social rings, like rings around a planet. Like the first ring of relationships are your friends and family. Second ring is where we would put neighbors, the barista, the postman, uh, et cetera. And then the third ring are people that you just kind of facilitate transactions with, but it's not necessarily very much relationship there. And I think part of the, the the premise of his book is that we've, you know, we're nurturing these first ring and we we facilitate the, the, the third ring, but it's really the second ring relationships that are vanishing, hence the title, The Vanishing Neighbor. And so it's almost like part of what you're doing is making a case for paying more attention to those second ring relationships and seeing them as an opportunity to fight loneliness, build connections, build, you know, social ties and 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 sustain a healthy social fabric in your community. But I think part of the struggle is that there's been so much attention. We've kind of been, been, I think, raised in a culture that uh, prioritized first ring relationships. And, and then you add in social media, that changes even everything because then you have these weird relationships with people you've never even met, but you like follow their life, which is just so odd. But um, so that being said, for people who want to like start to nurture those second ring relationships more and pay more attention, what are some of the obstacles and challenges that you've noticed or that that we should be thinking about yeah i think that's a good question a question i i am constantly thinking about i think the first challenge would be our values as people as a culture i for the most part i don't think we have a shared value of of neighborliness and connection I think so much of our culture has been individualized, you know, and, and so we've become more of a me culture than a we culture. And, and so I, I think it's opportunities like this to talk and share with people that raise the question, do you value neighborliness? Is that something that's a commitment and a priority to you? Uh, and I think that's a major, major challenge. And so, I mean, we've been at this 15 years, but it's it's a number one struggle is we it's the invitation to allow people to experience it. So like so for they for them to say this is important, this matters, this should be at the center of my life alongside my my care for my family and my friends or coworkers. And and so I think that's number one. Number two is busyness. We're too busy. You know, I don't know how many times I've invited people to something like, sorry, I can't go. I'm, I'm on vacation. I'm going to my child's sports event. My kid has this recital. And, and, and so part of our culture um, is a culture of acceleration. We're constantly on the go. We're constantly on the move. If we're not busy, we're not valuable. We're not important. Uh, we're not getting ahead. We're not making the money. You know, we're not getting the house, you know, fill in the blank. And uh, Hartmut Rosa has, has a book on on acceleration, and I highly recommend it. And and where he wants to go is what he calls resonance. It, it's, it's a place that it's, it's not about going too fast or it's not about even slowing down. It's about just having this resonance, this attentiveness, 
this being present with your family, with your friends, with your neighbors, and enjoying the moment, taking it in, stopping in the moment and saying to your friends or your family, your neighbors, this is wonderful. This is great. I'm so thankful for this moment. And so that's resonance to, to just be in the moment, to be aware and uh, of who's there and, and, and to be grateful and, and, and uh, moved and joyful for that. Um, and then I think the third thing is, I don't think the government, you know, including the police and council and mayor and city planners, they don't care about neighborliness for the most part. Um, and so that becomes a challenge when it costs $150 to throw a block party, to connect neighbors, to actually make your neighborhood safer, healthier, happier, and create a more belonging and well-being. that, that the government gets in the way of that for no reason that I can think of. It's not necessarily a moneymaker. Um, and when, you know, in Long Beach, 69% of our city budget goes to the police, and their job is to keep us safe when the reality is that it's neighbors that, that create safety. So why aren't we investing more money into block party? Why can't you give, what if you gave $100,000 to a neighborhood association and saying, hey, this goes to, to hospitality and connection and art and better sidewalks and bike paths and all these things that create a safer, uh, more flourishing community. So I'd say those are three places to start. Um, that I wrestle with. Yeah. I've definitely seen that play out here, like all three of those challenges. Um, my second year of living in Waco, I decided to get involved with our neighborhood association and the neighborhood I was living in. And uh, it was a really great experience. I learned so much. Um, but I remember like one of the things that stood out to me was how hard it was for them to get some of their events off the ground because of the regulations and the costs associated with it. And it took so much energy that it almost it's almost like all the energy went into this one huge annual event when I'm like, man, that energy could be distributed all year and creating little small pockets of connection all year rather than just the one in addition to the one event. But just keeping up with city requirements and then we, you know, we had the event and I was volunteering at it and they do this at this cool Halloween event every year. But just, yeah, so much of what I noticed, it, it almost made you feel like the city didn't really, I don't know. And, and I hate using the city because I know it's like so many different people involved and I don't want to as ascribe uh, bad motives to people, but it, it you just couldn't help but think at a certain point, you're like, why are we having to fight and argue and make our case that we need a way to make the street safer for the kids who are coming to this? This should not take a ton of meetings and phone calls and emails and paperwork, right? This should just be something that we so obviously all agree on because it's for the good of the community. So yeah, just what you're saying about how how uphill it can be to to work with the city. and um, But I also really appreciate what you're saying about values because that's a huge part of it. Values and mindset right? If, if, if meeting a neighbor and, and being part of your community hasn't like landed on your radar of things that are worth your time, that's also a pretty uphill battle. And I think part of that actually flows downstream from how our cities have been designed, right? Because it's almost like this hyper individualism has been baked into the sort of pattern of the American city with like everyone with their home and their fence and their car and their garage and their TV Everyone has to buy all their own appliances rather than sharing, right? Like it's very odd to go interrupt your neighbor to ask to borrow anything. It, it's, it's just kind of been this like this design. I feel like a lot of these values have have flown downstream from this pattern of, of how we build and organize our cities that sort of catechize you in a way or sort of train you into a set of social norms that make it very hard to break out and think about those second ring relationships. So I guess I'm saying that to hopefully help people not feel guilty, <laughs> um, you know, because it really has been just the sort of social and cultural environment that we've been raised in. And it's very hard to swim upstream against that. Totally. Yeah. Thanks for saying that. For someone who's listening to this and who feels like really inspired by this by the work you're doing, as I know, I have definitely been feeling since getting to talk to you these couple times. Um, 
but who's resonating with this? Who's saying like, oh my goodness, I this is putting words to something I've been thinking about. I want to start cultivating that second those second relationships. I want to start getting to know people. What are some practical tips you would advise? Like how can how can people get started? Yeah, I think the first thing is, you know, there's a saying that large doors swing on small hinges. So that if we want to create these opportunities and these connections, it's not the door that is the key. It's it's the, the tiny hinges that support the door and, and allow for things to happen. And so I think the first question is always, what what are the small things that, that you can do? What I've recognized is, is hospitality around the medium of food and, and drink um, is, is so important. And it's not an invitation of, of people out the gate to come in your home. It, we, we always encourage people. I mean, we've seen people for the first time, they're connecting in their front yard. They're connecting in their backyard. In, in a, a common area, they have a courtyard, you know, for apartment complexes. We've seen people do it on a sidewalk where they don't have a front yard or a back alley. I mean, or at a local park. And so um, just looking at what are, what are the assets of, of space um, that, that you, you guys share and then create a, a flyer. I mean, if you go type in flyer on, in an app store, there's going to be like 20 different, um, easy ways now, Canva and all these sorts of things, uh, of ways to create a quick flyer in, in 20 minutes that looks, looks good. And, um, so always start with the flyer, um, pick a date on a calendar Start easy. I think the easiest way to start was like a breakfast, like donuts and coffee. You know, it's cheap. Ever, who doesn't love donuts? I want to say that Long Beach is the donut capital of the world. We're not there <laughs> okay, yet. you can't you can't be both the ice cream we're, capital we're and the donut capital. That's too much for one city. <laughs> I know. So the theme of sweets is is big. Um, but start with hospitality, welcoming the neighbor as a stranger, inviting them in listening to their stories. And I think the other thing is don't do it alone. This we, this yeah, with mentality is so important because even if you do this event and, and one person shows up or two people show up and you feel like, oh, it wasn't what I expected. Which I've had that happen. I threw an ice cream social in my neighborhood um, and one person, two people came. <laughs> and yeah. then I realized that I did not understand that Texans stay inside in the summer. So I need to re- re- reconfigure my strategy. But it, it's it's still okay. It's still what, okay. Do you guys have heat or something? Uh, no, it was just more like, I think the idea of doing social events in the summer is just kind of not a thing. Like, oh, and, and I think I, I coincided with a holiday and I, I didn't, I just didn't realize that the date would have people uh, doing other things. But even if it's just two people, you'll be okay. It we'll seems like Texas it. should just be constantly doing neighborhood barbecues, you know. It's too hot. No, people hibernate home. in the summer. They do things and the, they'll do things in the fall, more in the fall, even in the winter, because it doesn't get that cold. So mm-hmm. I, I've had to adjust after moving here from the East Coast and realize like, oh, the summer is when we all stay inside. Got it. It's a good reminder um, that each neighborhood and each city has its own challenges mm-hmm, and things, mm-hmm. things to, to think about and work through that there is no cookie cutter way of right, exactly. doing this thing called neighborliness. Good exactly. Point. Um, but yeah, I, I'm really glad you emphasized the value of not doing it alone. That's huge. Just find one other person. Honestly, it makes all the difference in the world if you just have one other person um, to like go hand out or just to be your accountability partner, even if they can't do that much. If you say like, hey, I really want to throw this you know, party, this ice cream social, whatever. Please help me accountable to that. I'll do all the work, but just be there and, and like make sure I do it. Like it can make such a big psychological difference. So I'm just just really glad you said that. For folks who might get to spend some time in your city, I, I always love to think about this scenario. So uh, my husband and I did some road tripping this summer. Whenever we road trip, I always try to find local businesses to support in the cities that we take a quick stop in. So if we were coming to Long Beach, what what local businesses would you recommend that we check out or what should we do? Yeah. I mean, if I was thinking of having a couple hours, um, I'd kind of go to my, my own roots in Belmont Shore. Um, just based off of my own uh, experiences as a kid growing up. Um, 
And I'd say get a pizza at Domenico's. They have a ground pepperoni and a ground sausage pizza. So instead of getting the you know these little slices of pepperoni or chunks of sausage, they cover the whole thing <laughs> in pepperoni and sausage, and it's it's very addictive. At least my husband you, will appreciate this recommendation if you you eat meat. And so I would say get the pizza and then go over to Nick's, and they have this butter cake there. That once you go into it, it's like oh my god, I could hang out here. It's one of those things you you think you could just keep eating forever because it's so delicious. <laughs> and so get a dessert at Nick's. And then um, we have this little thing we call the bay. It's Alameda's Bay. And it faces um, just all these homes where there's like kayaking and stand-up paddleboarding. And there's no wind. And I'd say go there for a nice sunset. Um, cause there are no typically clouds here. We got sunny days and enjoy the sunset right on the water, put your feet in, relax, um, and enjoy that delicious pizza and that dessert. And, uh, and then just enter heaven and, and stay there <laughs> as long as you can. <laughs> Words to live by. Uh, fantastic, fantastic advice and great recommendations, but more importantly, a great story and uh, just a, a wonderful example that you're setting uh, for what it means to to tend to our the social fabric of our cities. Um, thank you, everybody, for listening to this episode of The Bottom Up Revolution. Uh, we'll be back in two weeks with another conversation. I'll have links in the show notes so you can learn more about Scott and we love Long Beach. We'll also link to the local businesses that he recommended that you visit should you happen to be in his town. Um, if you know someone in your community who you think would make a great fit for our show, please nominate them using the Suggest a Guest form linked in the show notes. Uh, thank you and keep taking care of your city. And thank you, Scott. Thank you. Have a good one. Mm-hmm.